And welcome to Homefront Rising, the U.S. Tour of Duty podcast. And I'm with the very fiery Scott Ritter. Are you feeling fiery this evening, Scott? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> Scott just wrote a, an article that we've published at USTourOfDuty.org, and it's called The uh, Ritter Switcheroo Imbroglio, Part 1 getting to know you and part two is coming next Thursday. Uh, so I uh, recommend everybody go over to us tour of duty at some point to read that. And what prompted that is that Scott's analysis on the Ukraine Russia conflict has evolved. And a lot of folks have been criticizing him as if he's maybe a hypocrite or as if uh, he was wrong and he won't admit it. And um, I sense a little anger. And Scott uh, wanted to rebut people and he wanted to uh, just get out there what his qualifications are so people know where he's coming from. He's a figure of historical importance, famous mostly for uh, his uh, analysis concerning weapons of mass destruction in uh, Iraq, which was the basis for the U.S. invasion there after he was the chief weapons inspector in Iraq for the United Nations. Uh, but a lot of folks aren't all that familiar with him, and he has a long storied career that involves way more than being the UN weapons inspector. So we're going to get to a little bit of uh, what he addressed in the article. There's way too much in that article for us to get to all of it. So we'll just get to a little bit of it. Scott and I will chat for a few minutes, and then we'll open it up to the audience. There's a couple of ways to, uh, to get in and, and participate. One way is you can join by webcam. And uh, you go to USTourDuty.org, and right there at the top, you can see where to click. You got to use the Chrome, Opera, or Firefox. It uh, doesn't work with Safari. Also, you can call on the phone, and the uh, number is uh, where is the number? I must have it around here somewhere. That's at US Tour of Duty, also. Oh, yeah, it's 970 647 7466, 970 Mission. And uh, you can call with a regular phone, or you can click in by pressing uh, the button there on the website and uh, connect with us by your phone that way as well. So Scott, I've, I've seen a lot of the uh, scuttlebutt, a lot of the reaction. So I, I know why you're annoyed. Um, I'm not sure you've, you've picked the best example of it though. The, uh, the, the example that really is what your article centered around is, is a response to this guy, Michael Whitney. And as I look at it, I don't, I don't think he was particularly unfair to you compared to other people. What, out of all the people who were giving you grief, why did you focus on him? Well, um, because he is um, a 20-year veteran journalist who undertook to write a, uh, an article um, assessing my, uh, my analysis. Mm -hmm. And um, he didn't call me. He didn't reach out. That's not journalism, you know. So you know the 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 uh, you know the the angst is if you're going to write about me, um, you know at least have the courtesy to call me and say, hey, uh, I'm writing get ready an article uh, where I'm going to use the term switcheroo. Uh, the implication, of course, is that I've done a 180 degree uh, flop on my uh, on the position in Ukraine. You know, and you know, the other people, frankly, I mean, I, I don't want to be rude, or I don't care. Um, you know, if, 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 if Joe Schmo from, you know, East right, Nowhere. So, so this guy seems to have credentials or at least claims to. So that's why you, I mean, I, lo I looked him up, I mean, you know, before I, before I, you know, you know, got a, got a hair under my skin. <laughs> I looked him up, did the research and, uh, right. and then I saw that he, you know, he, he, All right, so let me, oh, is, he claims to be a journalist 20 years and, I've never dealt with a journalist, uh, a responsible journalist, a professional journalist who uh, is going to write a major piece and not call or not attempt All right, to contact well, the subject I, I, I want to ask you about when it's the obligation to call in a minute. But let's start with the quote that you put at the top of the article. And you're reacting to switcheroo. But the reason I'm saying it's not the best example is because he, he just acknowledges what your reason is. I mean, so what he used the word switcheroo. He, he's, uh, the part in red is the, is the part I'm emphasizing. He, he wrote, Ritter's views on the matter have changed dramatically, and that's due almost entirely to developments on the ground. 
As Ritter candidly admits, the military in the West is providing to Ukraine, I'm sorry, the military aid the West is providing to Ukraine is changing the dynamic. That's your reason for the so-called switcheroo. So, so what's so bad about that? I think if you go um, <laughs> below, that's quite a turnaround from a statement made just weeks earlier, Russia's winning the war and winning decisively. Then underneath it is the one that gets me where, um, and I don't have it in front of me, but it, it basically, the, the implication is, um, you know, he wanted to know why I, uh, why I made the switch. So he's asking a question uh, and then he's going to expand on that. Um, you know, if you're going to ask a question, ask me the question. Okay, Don't so ask me, the audience the question. <laughs> all right. L let me ask you about that, too. Uh, that's another thing I don't really agree with, unless I'm, I'm just not understanding your logic. In, in many cases, uh, people who are public figures will present their opinions to the world and others will comment on it. So they're not always going to be contacting the uh the public figure who they're reacting to. So when are they supposed to contact you and, you know, the subject of the, uh, of their criticism and, and when not you, you put something out there to the public. He was commenting on the public, you know, on what you have said publicly. I think if you're going to call yourself a journalist, you have a professional responsibility to reach out. Otherwise stop calling yourself a journalist. And then you just become Gonzalo Lira or something of that nature. Um, you think you think you think journalists do that in general or almost every time when they're when they're commenting on what's out there in the public? You think they're I, I, I think I, I know for a fact that uh, most um, reputable outlets uh, before mm -hmm. they publish something, the editor will say, have you attempted to contact the person you're writing about? Mm -hmm. um, and generally speaking, they'll. If they haven't, they say, I think you have an obligation. This has happened to me before where I've written about people who have said things and I've commented on it. And I've been told by the editors of uh, magazines that I need to at least make an effort to uh, to to get comment on it. In fact, you published an article um, a while back on um, on CrowdStrike. And uh, mm -hmm. and I, I uh, was very critical of uh, Michael Sussman, who's, of course, in the headlines lately. Um, and. Uh, the, the when I first wrote it, I, I, I wrote it for um, a, a major magazine that got cold feet. Uh, but they, uh, but they, they said, you, you need to reach out for a comment from Mr. Sussman. They were afraid that Sussman was going to sue, sue me for what I was saying. So I reached out. I left messages and he didn't. And in the article, it says I have made contact. I attempted to make contact with them. They have not responded. So yeah. that's well, not an obligation. I'm not saying it never happens, but I think it depends on what's being said. It's not always it's not always necessary. If he asked something. a question about explaining why I made the switcheroo. So he has a duty and responsibility to ask me that question, not then go to uh, other people and have them answer the question for me. That isn't journalism. I remember something and I want to see if you remember it. Uh, years ago, you wrote something. I think it was in a book or uh, an article, I can't remember which, but you wrote something that was critical of Tom Hayden about the Port Huron statement. And mm -hmm. I remember he got really pissed off at you because yep. you didn't call him. And I remember saying to him the very same thing I'm saying to you is, well, well, why should he? I mean, you know, your Port Huron statement is well known to the public. He's just commenting on some things out there. What, you know, why? why right, but the difference, he? the difference between that, and I know that the book is, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the art of war for the anti-war movement. Um, and I, and I quote the Port Huron statement and that's the thing. I quoted the Port Huron statement. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking Tom Hayden to comment on something he already wrote. I didn't say Tom Hayden has recently done 180 degrees on the Port Huron statement. Tom Hayden has taken a completely different position. Had I done that, I would have had a duty responsibility and obligation to call him and say, Hey Tom, I need you to comment on X. You, it appears you've done a flip-flop. The old switcheroo, Tom. I need to find out about it. But I did. All, right. I did. All I did is quote his comment. Therefore, I have no duty and responsibility to reach out to quote something that he is committed to. He wrote. I'm not rewriting his words. I'm not reinterpreting his words. I'm simply putting it out there as this is what he said. All right. So let's before we get into the article, I want to just since the article is entitled Getting to Know You. The article is, you know, about your professional background. Well, right? Just so you know, the, the reason why that title's there is um, 
it's because that's what the journalist in question should have done before he starts to comment on um, why I did what I did. He didn't even bother to say, hey, who are you? What are you? What have you done? What's your background? Uh, what, what approach have you taken? He simply throws out these buzz terms, the old switcheroo. Um, yeah, I took a little bit of umbrage at that, yeah. He didn't show you the kind of respect that uh, Joe Biden did, right? Okay. I don't care about respect. I just in. care about we professionalism. We want him to get in. It's important that he does get in. <laughs> all right. Just a little jo- joke there. So, um, all right. Uh, so, so let's get to know you. Before we talk about your uh, professional expertise, uh, what about your personality? I mean, you're, you could, you, I was kind of half serious before when I said, you, you know, fiery, angry. But, you know, you do come across that way. Um, and I think, in my experience, I've observed that people are sometimes scared of you. Not from a distance, necessarily, but when they're, you know, in the, on the premises with you. Uh, and I personally am not scared of you. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, and that, that may be why, you know, one of the reasons our relationship has, you know, been going on so long. Uh I don't know. I guess I, I'm not really sure why I'm not scared of you, but other than I don't see any reason to be. But are you aware of that? That people are kind of intimidated by you? No, I mean, if if they are, it's that's their problem, not mine. You you know me. I mean, the first time I met you, you invited me to go down to Texas uh, to speak at uh, I think Southern Methodist University, and um, afterwards uh, you brought me on the stage and you introduced me to a um, a gentleman who gave me a hug. Um, uh, and that gentleman was an openly gay Marine. And, um, you know, I, I'm not homophobic, but, you know, to be on a stage in front of people, uh, things of that nature, um, it, it, it took me aback. Now, had I been a mean person, I, I think I would have handled that differently. I took it, I think I took it in good stride. And it, actually, you and I laughed about it afterwards. And it uh, formed the, the foundation of um, our relationship. Uh, after that, you and I then... Uh, collaborated extensively over the years trying to build up an understanding about the the, the war in Iraq, et cetera. And I think you've seen me interact with you and others. Um, I do best, I think, at a bar with a cold beer. Um, and we can um, mm-hmm. we can just talk and we have a good time. We laugh. We can get serious. But the last thing I think I come across in a, on a personal basis is um, mm-hmm. angry, fiery, intimidating. When you're speaking in front of a crowd, um, you know, it's and I'm going to say it, but it's going to come across wrong. It's it's performance art, uh, but I'm not performing. I mean, I'm not. It's not theatrical. I'm not making things up, but I'm speaking from the heart. Uh, and there's a difference between speaking to a crowd that you haven't established a personal connection with. Um, so you're basically speaking to yourself, and you can get maybe I'm, I, I can wind myself up very easily. But when I'm with somebody directly, like with you or or anybody else, you know, sitting next to them. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't get that way. I, I, I don't know. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And I know. so that's I'm, why I, I don't know why people would, uh, I mean, I can understand why, but I mean, it's, it's not something that I'm uh, aware of because as soon as I meet somebody, um, you know, it's, it's, we're, no, it's a very yeah. relaxed yeah. environment. <laughs> right. And, and you're a very funny person and you, you do some impersonations of people and so forth. And so on. I, I don't think the public is aware of that. Um, or should they be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I beg to differ. Um, all right. So let's get to the article. So one of the things that struck me is, you know, you say that first and foremost, when it comes to like saying who you are in an interview, that your first thought is to say you're a Marine Corps intelligence officer. But invariably, people say you're the former UN weapons inspector because that's what you're most famous for. Why do you uh, first and foremost think of yourself as a Marine intelligence officer? Well, that's what I started out as. I mean, I, I could say I was a beer drinking college football player, uh, but at some point in time, I matured out of that and got a commission in the uh, in the Marine Corps based upon a um, a degree in Russian history, by the way, that uh, I was able to leverage into the Marine Corps, making me the first um, of a new breed of intelligence officers. When I when I came in in the 1980s, early 1980s, the Marine Corps at that time in order to be an intelligence officer, you had to serve at least three years in combat arms, uh, either infantry, artillery, armor. Um, and after that point, you could do a lateral move into intelligence. The Marine Corps viewed intelligence as a, uh, as a specialty that you, you needed to be grounded in 
the reality of combat because that's what the Marine Corps does. Uh, we don't do big theoretical space warfare stuff. We, we close with it, destroy the enemy through firepower and maneuver. Um, but I had you know studied uh, Russia. I spoke a little bit of Russian. Uh, I had published some articles on the Russian military in some pretty prestigious uh, journals. And I, uh, I, I petitioned the Marine Corps and said, I don't want to wait three years. I want to be an intelligence officer right off the bat. And lo and behold, uh, headquarters Marine Corps went, we bless you. You're now an intelligence officer. So one of the reasons why I define myself that way is that I was, uh, when I came in, I was unique. Very, I was unique. I was a second lieutenant with no experience in anything who suddenly was said, you know, you're going to be an intelligence officer uh, providing combat intelligence to combat arms. Um, you know, and, and, and that's difficult. For instance, in the Marine Corps, uh, in the infantry, you know, they're, they're, they gather their intelligence at the point of a bayonet. Uh, I mean, right. right. This was, so historically, this was at a time when the, when the Marines were much more open to innovation than they had been in the past. Were you aware of that going in, or is it more in retrospect you, you realize? I mean, did it surprise no, you? No, I, 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 it was, a, it was, it was this, this was actually another reason why I define myself in the way I do, because this was a, the time that I came in was a fundamental tr a period of transition for the Marine Corps away from the world war two, Korea, Vietnam. Um, hey, diddle diddle straight up the middle. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to assault the beach. We're coming in, uh, shrug your shoulders, lower your head, just go, go, go. And if the bullet doesn't get you, you just keep going. And we're very good at that. We, uh, we racked up a whole bunch of victories. So we don't lose. But uh, those victories came at a cost. There's a monument in Washington, D.C., the Iwo Jima monument, uh, because we lost a lot of guys charging the beach at Iwo Jima. Um, and the Marine Corps decided that, you know, hey, we need to come up with a better way of employing our Marines. Um, and so they, they looked at a couple of things. They looked at, uh, you know, Little Hart. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a British um, a strategist, wrote a, a book called, the, 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 I think it's the strategy, the indirect approach. Uh, they studied uh, John Boyd, uh, Air Force officers, uh, OODA loop, <coughs> which is basically um, in fighter pilot lingo. You know, he says that if I can get inside your OODA loop, I'll shoot you down every time. And he proved it. Uh, but we we expanded the OODA loop to get inside the our enemy's decision-making cycle. That means that the enemy is going to react to us. We're not reacting to them. Um, and there, there, there are other things. And, and the Marine Corps changed its whole approach. So it became a very intellectual um, time. Uh, General Al Gray was very influential at this time. He had a reading list. We had to read the books. We discussed the books. I, I think in the article I mentioned, you know, I've over my time I've I've met um, some of the greatest minds in the world: academics, authors, uh, people of this nature. And I've talked with them, and they all impress me. But the to this day, the most impressed I've ever been intellectually is sitting around an officers' club bar with fellow lieutenants talking about this new revolution in warfare that we're undertaking. Uh, that we were undertaking. We were the ones doing it. We led the charge. And, um, and that's why I define myself, because this was this was a defining moment in my life. I was given great responsibility uh, for a very junior officer. And um, I and the other officers of my, uh, you know, my peers, we, we, we made an impact. We changed the way the Marine Corps does business. I remember uh, we talked about this years ago. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know if you recall, but I, I I, I said to you one day, why, you're such an intellectual. Uh, who did you talk to when you were in the service? Because I had a prejudice that, you know, military personnel aren't the brightest people in the world. And I remember you telling me that then, that, oh, no, uh, especially the generals, you know, are very often intellectual and they're very often anti-war, right? I don't think, well, I mean, one of the reasons why the Marine Corps uh, embraced maneuver warfare is what we're talking about, the concept of maneuver warfare, um, was because... I think these generals who were all veterans of Vietnam said, there's got to be a better way of doing business. We can't be in the business of, of killing Marines. Marines have to be in the business of killing the bad guys. Um, and we have to make the Marines more lethal and uh, we have to find a way to keep them alive. Uh, we don't charge beaches anymore. We don't run into the, you know, the teeth of the enemy's fire. We have to maneuver around them, hit them where they're weakest, hit them where they're not. Plus we're a small organization. And if we're going up uh, against an enemy like the Soviet Union, um, you know, we have to be able to maximize our lethality, maximize our combat potential and maximize our survivability. We can't afford to get in a slugging match where we're killing a whole bunch of them, but they're whittling us down and they have more than we do. They win. So military math dictated that we uh, 
we learned to fight differently and, and, and we did. And uh, that's one of the things that I, that, that I tried to bring up in the article about, you know, why I was a little upset with the, um, with, 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 with the, uh, the journalist in question, Mr. Whitney, um, had he called me, he would have found out that um, I'm pretty damn good at what I do. I mean, I don't mean to brag, but as a second lieutenant and then later as a first lieutenant, um, I was personally responsible for the, a, a revolution in how the Marine Corps employed artillery against the Soviet target. Um, and I won't get into the details here, but, um, you know, when we talk about Ukraine and the conflict in Ukraine right now, I, I think people are starting to realize that it's, um, it's an artillery war. <laughs> that when we speak about combined arms and that, that's bringing in air, the tanks, the infantry, et cetera, and artillery, um, you know, this is an artillery war and the Russians are very good at artillery. They do it better than anybody else. But I will tell you this, 1986, 29 Palms. We had a Marine Corps field artillery unit that could go toe-to-toe with the Russians and beat them every single time because they had an intelligence officer who knew artillery, knew the Russians, and knew the Marine Corps and brought it all together. And um, that was me. All right, so we're going to get into Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict more next week. But let's talk about how uh, the part of your background that's actually more relevant to the current situation. Uh, people may not appreciate uh, how deeply immersed you are in Russian history. You have a degree in Russian history. You were stationed there. You married a Russian woman. You Georgian. write for... Pardon me? Georgian. <laughs> I can't hear Russian. you. Georgian. Oh, I thought you were... Oh. oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, Not nonetheless, to say that because she'll, she'll kill me. <laughs> <laughs> because she's Georgian. <laughs> she can kill me instead. Um, but... Uh, so, so you know a lot about Russia, and uh, it comes across very clearly that you don't have any hostility towards Russia in general. You're not particularly hostile towards Putin. You're not necessarily a cheerleader for him, but I think you kind of come across that way sometimes to some people. But can, can you explain a little bit about, about, in terms of your background, your understanding of Russian history and, and how that relates to, to maybe what, what you're saying nowadays? Well, sure. I mean, just as a little background, I, you know, I grew up, uh, I was an Air Force brat and my father, you know, was a career Air Force officer. And we spent, um, you know, a a child's lifetime traveling around the world. Uh, The last two places I went um, in in high school was Turkey. Uh, We were stationed in Turkey and then in uh, West Germany. This is the front line of the Cold War, especially West Germany. Uh, You know, this, this is in 1977, 1978, 1979. and the, 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 the potential of conflict was a daily reality. We had Soviet forces right over the border. Um, had the balloon gone up, had the balloon gone up, they would have... Um, you are connected would, it, to host. Welcome, host. You are now in the host room and can manage your callers from the call-in studio web interface. Sorry about that. We, this is the first time we've done this, and I was just connecting... Uh, to our app that's going to allow us to take phone calls. So well, we're, we're, and I hope, the audience, <laughs> I hope the audience will be a little patient with us. We're, we're, this is the first time we've done all this and we're trying to juggle a lot of things at once and, and we don't have much help here. So, so a learning process. But uh, no, that, my point was that the Soviets were right across the border. In fact, had the balloon gone up, uh, they it was expected that they could be at our house in a matter of days. Um, we lived right next door to a, uh, a, a nuclear uh, storage facility, uh, so we wouldn't even be alive by the time they came to our house because they would have nuked that place and killed us. This was our reality. Um, every every year, twice a year, the U.S. ran what was called the Reinforcement of Forces in Germany, Reforger exercises, where they flew in tens of thousands of uh, soldiers and uh, airmen, and they married up with prepositioned equipment and exercised it. And um, our backyard, our village, the villages we lived in became the battlefields. Uh, because that would have been the reality had the Soviets come across the border. So it was a constant, ever-present um, feeling of the potential of conflict. And you know, when you're raised overseas like that, um, it, it, it has an impact on you. I mean, I, I, I would say that I was hyper-patriotic. I mean, I loved my country, and I was ready to sacrifice everything for my country. The concept of kill a commie for mommy, that was real. Uh, better dead than red, you're damn right. So... I joined, uh, when I went to college, I, I, I said, I'm going to study Russia because you have to know your enemy. And I studied it. I learned it. I learned a lot about them. I learned their language. And I don't hate them. I mean, I, I actually learned to appreciate Russian culture, Russian language, Russian literature, the history of the Russians. But I was prepared to kill them. 
um, because that was the whole purpose of it. And then in 1987, um, while I was out working with the artillery in 29 Palms, practicing uh, to, to kill the Russians more effectively, um, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan did an amazing thing. They signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in uh, December of 1987. That's a treaty that got rid of an entire class of, um, of nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles that were destabilizing Europe and the world, bringing us close to the brink of nuclear annihilation. And they said, rather than um, continue to build these weapons up, we're going to get rid of them. And uh, the Department of Defense was tapped to, um, to carry out the inspections to implement this. It had never been done before. On-site inspections had never been done before because both sides didn't trust each other. We didn't want the Soviets crawling over our sides. They didn't want Americans crawling over their sides. But part of this treaty was, it's a new way. We're going to learn to trust one another. We're going to let weapons inspectors in. And um, they, they, they pulled out the database and saw that I was, a you know, the reason why they made me an intelligence officer is because of my so-called Russian expertise. So I was tapped to uh, go join the on-site inspection agency. And uh, long story short, uh, when the treaty uh, went into force on uh, July 1st, 1988, I'd already been in the Soviet Union for two weeks as part of the advance party. I was the first U.S. inspector on the ground in the Soviet Union to implement the Intermediate Forces Treaty. And I did that job for, um, for, for two and a half years. And uh, here I'm, I'm working outside of a Soviet missile factory. Uh, we're building something from scratch. Uh, we don't need to get into the details, but it was, um, you know, this was, it had never been done before. We we literally wrote the book on on-site inspection. And uh the concept of, um, you know, compliance verification done by humans, not by satellites. And uh, it was um, one of the more most rewarding jobs I've, I've ever had. And, and the thing that I learned there was that, um, you know, you study Russia from a, from a distance and you have a theoretical knowledge. But when you meet the Russians in person, you now have practical knowledge. You, you, you take the theory and you put it into practice. Reality, you see what literature means to them. These are very educated people. You see what their culture means. These are very patriotic people, but they're also people that have the same values, the same loves of life, they have the same desire for their children to have a better life. And the last thing they want to do is go to war against the Americans. Um, and 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 that was a that was a great learning experience to, to realize that um, you know maybe war isn't the answer. Maybe the answer is actually uh, sitting down and and working things out. But well, you know I don't want to make it sound like it was all um, you know better roses. We were there to do a job, and uh, it was still the Cold War. Uh, they were still considered to be our, our greatest potential enemy. And I was there as an intelligence officer. And um, I, um, you know, and this is the other thing I wanted to make, you know, the point I would like to make to, you know, Mr. Whitney, had he called me, is that I was a professional intelligence officer. That mean, And I also own a couple dogs and they bark every now and then. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, the, the point is, I was very good at what I do in the, in the intelligence business. And, and just to highlight it, while I was in the Soviet Union working at this missile factory, um, I received two classified commendations from the director of the CIA. Um, this was unprecedented, never happened before. I was very junior to receive this, but it was based upon the analysis that I, uh, I did while on the ground in, in, in Vodkensk. And um, I'm very proud of that because I, I challenged um, some, some assumptions that had been made by the intelligence community over the years, assumptions that were made from a distance. Now that I'm actually there on the ground and able to see things on a continuous basis, as opposed to what a photo interpreter sees, you know, a snapshot in time where you're looking at something frozen. I'm seeing it unfold in front of me on a daily basis. And I was able to connect the dots, put two and two together and come up with a, um, with a, with a more detailed picture, a more detailed understanding uh, that uh, dramatically changed the way that the uh, CIA um, evaluated Soviet missile production. And, and I, I was, I was given a, uh, Commendation from the director of the CIA, and later on, I did the same thing. Um, you know, I, I was able to gather information and make uh, what they called uh, short-term predictions about what was coming out of the factory, Be meaning that I, I I broke the code and I could tell you what kind of missile was going to come out and when it was going to come out, and my analysis was accurate to the day. Um, and again, I got another commendation for that. So. I'm a pretty good intelligence officer. I, I don't mean to brag. There's other great intelligence officers out there, but you know, when 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 I use that term, Marine Corps intelligence officer, the, the two things I want to focus on is Marine Corps, meaning that I know war better than Mr. Wick <laughs> when he will ever know war. Um, I know artillery better than he will, better than his sources know, and I'm an intelligence officer. It means I'm a professional in the business of collecting intelligence, assessing intelligence, coming up with assessments, and then guess what? doing it all over again because intelligence is about 
reality and reality changes over time. New facts emerge. And if you don't bring in these new facts and do a reassessment, you're going to find yourself married to some suppositions that are no longer relevant to the reality on the ground. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But that was, you know, I left that I left the, I left the Soviet Union in uh, July of, uh, of 1990. Um, very rewarding uh, experience. And then I got caught up in the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Iraq and or Kuwait in August of 1990. And um, <clears throat> almost immediately I was uh, tapped to go work for uh, a special planning cell uh, run by the Commandant of the Marine Corps himself, Mr. Four Star, Al Gray. Uh, he had a major general, uh, Matt Caulfield, who was running what they call the War Fighting Center. And Matt was uh, responsible for bringing together a team of experts. Uh, and we're talking about colonels, lieutenant colonels, Nobody under right, the well, why, why, don't, why don't we hold it there and then we can come back to that. We've got some people holding. Uh, and so I just want to tell the folks a couple of things. One is please ask questions only related to the article. Uh, save your questions about the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict for next week's podcast. The other thing is to the folks who are trying to join by webcam, sometimes it doesn't quite work technically. And uh, if that's the case, you can call us on the phone. The number is 970-647-7466. That's 970-MISSION. And if uh, you didn't get that, just go to ustourofduty.org, and the info is at the top. So I see someone named Seth has been waiting. Are you still there, Seth? Turn on your microphone. Seth, are you there? Seth maybe has dozed off. And if Seth's not ready... Okay, Seth wasn't ready. How about Arena? Arena, are you there? Arena, can you come closer to the microphone? This is going great. <laughs> Arena, we can't hear you. You got a microphone you can get closer? I think she's talking to somebody else. Oh, okay. Well, got to be ready. So, um, all right, so let's get back to the discussion then. Uh, you were gonna, about to talk about your experience with Al Gray. No, I just, uh, the, the, the Marine Corps, like I said, the Marine Corps had undergone this, this, this uh, transformation into maneuver warfare, and suddenly we're having a chance to uh, practice um, what we had trained for for, for nearly a decade um, and, and, and practice it you know, in, in a real-world environment against the Iraqis, who at the time were the fourth largest army in the world. Uh, they just come off of uh, an eight-year war with uh, Iran. Um, they had some units that were considered to be very combat capable. And the question was, how is the Marine Corps going to be employed against uh, against the, the Iraqis? And General Schwarzkopf, who's an Army uh, general, was basically talking about bringing two Marine divisions ashore and using them like um, like our, their Army equivalent. But we're not. We're Marines. Uh, and that means we... we, we we're soldiers from the sea. Um, amphibious is our thing. And plus, maneuver warfare means you have to give us certain latitude. You don't just put us on the front line and tell us to charge into uh, the enemy defenses. That's what we just spent a decade training not to do. Uh, and so General Gray was like, we need to come up and, and, and come up with some uh, options that we can use to inform Schwarzkopf on perhaps better ways to, uh, to do this. And I was brought in as a very junior captain. So remember, junior captain, then we have lieutenant colonels, and we have colonels, and we have then the generals. Um, and I was uh, tapped with coming up with the uh, the options, and they picked the uh, the two that got briefed to um, to uh, General Gray were the two that I came up with. One was a core-sized amphibious assault on uh, Thau Peninsula, and the other one was a battalion-sized uh, raid against uh, uh, you know Iraqi lo logistics. Uh, but I developed the plans. I developed you know the and, and I learned a lot about you know. Uh, Simply, it, it, the war isn't just about you know maneuvering forces on the ground. It's about a lot of uh, a lot of logistics, a lot of uh, support, a lot of preparation. Uh, especially when you're talking about something like a core level um, assault, uh, the the logistics alone is is mind boggling. And I I wrote the plan for this as a captain, uh, and it was briefed to the commandant who approved it to be sent on to Schwarzkopf. That didn't happen. Schwarzkopf uh, received it and rejected it, and he kept the two marine divisions online. Uh, per his plan, but apparently, what I did impress the the Marine Corps uh, enough that they um, they had me sent to Saudi Arabia. I was supposed to go on uh, General Walt Boomer's staff, 
Uh, he was the Marine Corps, um, the general in charge of the Marine component uh, in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> the military being the military, they lost my orders. And uh, I landed in Riyadh. They didn't know what to do with me. So um, I ended up going working for General Schwarzkopf, the man who didn't like <laughs> the things I had come up with. And uh, they put me in uh, what's called battle damage assessment, um, which basically means you're sitting behind a desk, um, you know, and your job is to um, evaluate, you, you get an appreciation of the enemy's capabilities in certain areas. And then as the war unfolds, you evaluate whether or not the military power being brought to bear on these targets is achieving the desired objective. So um, one of the things that I was tasked with um, with, with monitoring was uh, the, the Iraqi um, Sir, uh, Scud missile force, and that's primarily because I, you know, they, they, I had a reputation uh, for being the missile guy because I worked at a Soviet missile factory. I don't know anything about missiles, and um, they, they said, "Okay, you're gonna, you're gonna track the the Iraqi Scuds," um, and I did. And uh, you know, uh, day six, day seven of the war, um, I, I started realizing that, you know, we we claimed that the Iraqis had, you know, around nineteen twenty mobile launchers, but the Air Force had already claimed that they killed sixty. And I said, well, we got a problem here because we've killed far more uh, missile launchers than we give the Iraqis credit, which me and they're still firing missiles, by the way. So we have to um, maybe we need to investigate um, how we're approaching target identification, et cetera. And so I sort of transitioned away from being a desk guy. Um, and now I, I, I got involved with special operations forces um, and I got involved with the Air Force in terms of targeting. And I spent the war. Uh, trying to do neat and interesting things in terms of uh, locating uh, the missiles. I got fired um, for daring to challenge. Um, you know, the, one of the big problems with the Gulf War is that uh, if Israel joined the war, the coalition would have fallen apart, and the Iraqis knew that, so they were pounding Israel with missiles. And the Israelis were getting frustrated because they kept saying, um, you know, you guys need to do more to kill kill the missiles for their launch, and we're trying to do everything we can. Um, and finally... Um, they send in some special forces units and uh, the helicopters go off and they fly up and they find this, uh, this vehicle that had a missile on it and they shoot it up and they bring the videotape back in. And, um, and, and, and they're, it, they're looking at it and they say, Oh, we killed one. We killed it. And I said, no, that's a, that's a scud decoy. They didn't like that. Another time F-15s uh, dropped bombs on vehicles and general Schwarzkopf went and gave a briefing. He said, we've killed three to seven uh, scuds and they and he published that and was sending it to the Israelis and I'm the battle damage assessment guy and I looked at the videotape and I said those are oil tankers we didn't kill any and so in the morning um, preparing the report which was my job I put zero for confirmed scuds and I was told by a colonel that I had to change that to a seven and I said why he said because of the torch cop said so and I said well he's not the battle damage assessment officer I am and um, my assessment is those aren't scuds so he gets zero and um, I was fired because they say when the uh, Commander-in-Chief says that there's seven, it's seven. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, people did some research back in Washington, D.C. Colin Powell, at the time was a four-star general, called Schwarzkopf and said, um, you know, it, it looks like these were, in fact, um, oil tankers. So I got my job back. But, uh, but you know, I got, I got fired for that. Um, but the bottom line is the, the war ended. I had what's called a good war, meaning I didn't get killed. Uh, and my reputation came out intact despite being fired. And um, I, I was known for having the audacity to challenge um, assessments made by four-star generals, um, stick to my guns, and be proven right. That audaciousness reared its head again uh, when uh, you lost faith in the legitimacy of your mission in Iraq, and you resigned, and you were, uh, you were accused of a switcheroo then, too. Yeah. Well, what was that switcheroo all about, the so-called switcheroo? Well, you know, after the war, I was recruited by the United Nations to head up an intelligence unit. And then that later turned into one of the most unique jobs in the world where I'm gathering intelligence. And then normally an intelligence officer will then turn, off a, turn over a packet to an operations officer who has the units and they go out and do it. Well, I was the intelligence officer gathering the information, assessing the information. And then I was the inspector because I wrote the book. Remember, I wrote the book on on-site inspections. And so now we're getting ready to do them in Iraq. And so I became the, the tip of the spear. So I was the intelligence officer and the inspector, very unique uh, thing. And I did that for seven years, which means that from the highest levels to the lowest levels, I knew everything. Uh, I sat in the White House when decisions were made. I was at Whitehall uh, in, in London, in Paris, and Jerry, you know, I met all these people. We did, you know, so there wasn't anything that, um, 
that, that I didn't know. Um, and we were trying to do the job. It's a difficult job. One of the things that made our job more difficult is that the Security Council resolution that um, empowered us, the mandate, called for 100 percent of verification of, Iraq, of Iraq's disarmed status. Uh, but because of a variety of things, one, because the Iraqis lied early on, two, because we bombed the hell out of their country during the Gulf War and a lot of things were destroyed and couldn't be accounted for, and three, uh, just because of the sloppiness on the part of, uh, of the Iraqis, the best we were able to achieve was you know, between 92 and 95% uh, certainty over the, the, the accounting, which under normal circumstances would be good enough. Uh, but what happened is the, uh, the council said 100%. The Americans stuck to that. They said, as long as Iraq isn't disarmed to 100%, they represent a threat to international peace and security. So you inspectors have to keep doing your job. That's not me saying it. The Security Council saying it. So when I resigned, I resigned because the United States was interfering with the work of the inspectors, blocking my inspections, not letting me finish the job. Um, and I, I testified before the Senate, again, Joe Biden, um, saying that you have to let us finish the job. My testimony and, and, and the stance I took, which is we have to allow inspectors to do the job until we get 100 uh, percent verification of Iraq's disarmed status. And if we fail to do that, Iraq represents a clear and present threat to international peace and security, was embraced by uh, conservatives, especially. They love beating up on Bill Clinton. Um, but again, that assessment is based upon the parameters defined by my job as an inspector. Uh, one of the things that I protested against uh, to the United States was they're using the inspection process for purposes that weren't mandated by the Security Council, namely to spy on Iraq for the purposes of trying to remove Saddam Hussein from power. Uh, the U.S. efforts in this regard um, hurt our reputation in Iraq. You know, it made it very difficult to get the Iraqis to believe that I was there to do the job of disarmament and not believe that I was there to kill Saddam Hussein. And so after I resigned in uh, December of 1998, uh, the United States again used the inspections to set up Iraq um, to gather intelligence about where Saddam Hussein was located. And then the United States ordered inspectors out of Iraq and used this intelligence to try and assassinate Saddam Hussein. It didn't work. It was Operation Desert Fox, 72-hour bombing campaign. But when it finished, the Iraqis said, we know what you, we know what happened here. The inspectors will never be allowed in. And so now that changes the, 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 the you know, it, when people say, well, what do we do now? How do we move forward? Uh, the fact that the, the inspections had been discredited uh, changes things. And so I, my, my opinion was we can no longer hold Iraq to the 100 uh, percent verification standard because we violated the, 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 the trust. Um, 100% meant that we have to go into every room, every door, every you know basement, uh, Saddam's palaces. Um, but we no longer can be trusted because we allowed ourselves to be used as a tool to gather intelligence to assassinate Saddam. So how can we then move this issue forward? And I came up with the concept of um, qualitative disarmament as opposed to quantitative. Quantitative means accounting for every last nut, bolt, and screw, what we were doing uh, when I testified before the Senate. Qualitative means, why don't we take a step back and realize that maybe there's some things that we don't have to account for, uh, such as, for instance, um, some, some forms of chemical weapons. Why? Because they have a shelf life of, say, three years, four years. Um, they were produced last in 1990. It's now 1998. Um, if they, no, no chemical weapons were produced while we were in Iraq because we monitored the totality of it. Uh, their industrial infrastructure, they didn't produce anything new. So anything they retain that we can't account for is no longer valid. So we can write that off and say, we don't need to be worried about that. Same with biological, biological agent on ballistic missiles. If they take the missile apart, and for instance, they take the, uh, you know, the, 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 the gas turbine and they hide it. Um, if they don't hide it in the right conditions, it'll bend. It becomes useless. Uh, so you do, you do this, you know, qualitative analysis and you realize that Iraq has been fundamentally disarmed, that Iraq poses no threat to the international community, um, and that maybe it's time that we talk about lifting the sanctions and just focusing on the monitoring of Iraq instead of this business of trying to hunt down uh, the unaccounted 5% that really doesn't exist. Uh, but we can't prove it doesn't exist. Therefore, Iraq is being held to account. So I wrote a paper um, uh, for arms control today. It was a uh, you know, it's a very reputable uh, journal on arms control called the, the, the Case for the Qualitative Disarmament of Iraq. Um, and I was criticized. People said, oh, you flip-flopped, you've changed. Um, this is unbelievable. And when I built on that to say there's no case for war because 
if you use qualitative analysis, you realize Iraq does oppose a threat worthy of war. This is what I stood up with you trying to oppose the conflict. And people accuse me of, you know, the old switcheroo. Uh, but the, the irony is uh, in, in 2005, um, the CIA finally had to confront the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And the assessment they published was exactly the analysis that I produced in the 2000. Uh, Arms Control Today article. And the point I'm trying to make by this is a professional intelligence officer is allowed to change perspectives, is allowed to reevaluate information based upon a new perspective as the perspectives change because of a change in the in reality. And just because you come up with a updated analysis doesn't mean that you flipped. It means that the reality has changed. The situation has changed. And therefore, your assessments must change with it. And I did so 100% accurate. 100% accurate. There was no flip. It was just called doing what an intelligence officer does. Got it. All right, let's take a phone call. Hopefully this will work. We have a gentleman on hold named David Melford. Hello, David. Are you there? Hello. Yes, I am here. Thank you very much for putting this out. I, uh, I tried to turn down my monitor. Hopefully we don't have an echo like I do. No, well, we don't hear an echo. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if this relates to the article because I, I didn't finish reading it, but I did read Scott's history and I've been following since um, I, I found you with Richard Medhurst and uh, Gray Zone and some of these other outlets. Um, I, I want to thank you for the education. I really didn't know any of this stuff before I found out about Scott Ritter. And also, he's not the first vet I've been listening to that you probably know Danny Surgeon, you probably know Matt Ho, mm -hmm. the other dissidents that, you know, Doug, Colonel Doug McGregor, um, that have been speaking out about these <laughs> unprovoked wars by the U.S., including this proxy war against uh, Russia through Ukraine. And my question is this, since I've been chatting quite a bit with the audience from Democracy Now!, have you ever been invited onto Democracy Now!, when uh, when I was actually doing the anti-war stuff with uh, Jeff, I was a um, I was on Democracy Now all the time. I used to go to Amy Goodman's studio, a, a converted firehouse in New York City, and then um, when we'd go um, around the country, uh, Amy Goodman would off, often come and, and and do interviews on on scene, and I would be interviewed by her there. So I used to be um, you know, a, 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 a a common presence on democracy now. I haven't been on democracy now in years, and um, I think that uh, on on the issue of Ukraine, um, we might have diverging uh, points of view. Okay, I had to drop that call because David had his uh, speaker on too loud. We were getting feedback, so hopefully you heard the answer online. And let's see if we have anybody else here. Let's try to get one of these video calls in. Audio only. Josiah, are you there? No. Uh, yes, I'm here. Oh, good. Can you hear him, Scott? I can hear him, yeah. All right, Josiah, ask a great question. Please be succinct. No speeches. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Um, I was following Scott's consternation quite closely regarding the article about, you know, flip-flopping, and I thought actually the person who wrote that, I thought he treated you quite deferentially. And uh, the, the case you make, Scott, is so elementary in terms of, you know, you change your opinion as the facts on the ground dictate. Seems so obvious to me that I'm wondering why either of you, either this gentleman with the article or you, even spend more than, say, 10 minutes um, trying to justify a point of view, which I think in Scott's case is uh, it's so obvious. I, I don't quite see the need for such an extensive use of time. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think uh, I think Jeff uh, was making a similar point at the top. But uh, you know, in, in, in total transparency, um, another reason why we 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 opted to do this approach, uh, the get to know you approach isn't just about responding to Mr. Whitney's lack of journalistic professionalism, which as you rightly point out, probably only um, you know, rates five, 10 minutes at the most. But this is the first effort between Jeff and I and what hopefully will be 
you know, a, a long-term project um, related to doing this kind of in-depth analysis, this kind of, um, you know, looking at, 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 at current issues, uh, intelligence matters, et cetera. Um, and since this is the first one, there's a lot of people out there who don't know me. And so this isn't just about responding to the article. This is about um, creating a, um, a record of who I am, what I am, where I come from, letting people get to know me so that in the future, um, they'll, they'll understand a little bit of my background, a little bit more about my perspective, a little bit more about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think that probably rates about an hour, which is what we're giving it. Thank you, Scott. All right. In other words, Mr. Whitney uh, gets to be used as a punching bag for our grander purposes. I punched him for five or 10 minutes and that's it. <laughs> he can take it. Um, let's give Arena one more chance. Arena looks like she might be uh, passing out. Arena, are you there, darling? Yes, I am. <laughs> Ask a great question. Yeah, she's gone. Marina's got technical issues, I think. No, there she is. She just knocked her camera off. Actually, I'm a big fan of Mrs. Scott, editor, and um, I basically watch all this podcast and uh, on Telegram and uh, everywhere else. Anyway, so uh, I basically came from Russia, uh, sorry, three years ago. And um, I lived through uh, Perestroika when Gorbachev was uh, in power, and it was a real disaster. So, and I actually very much uh, happy in this country. I love the states. I reach all my goals. I'm a physician. I work, and everything. My family is happy. Everything is fine. However, my um, father. And my father-in-law were soldiers in the Second War. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, they were very badly wounded. And we, our families, my husband's family and my family, were basically very much involved in a post-war life. And I was basically, I was born five years after war was um, completed and uh, I lived, lived through, I remember vividly all this destruction of my country. The, the, I mean, it was misery of people, how many people lost their loved ones and everything like that. So it's, uh, um, that, that's, that's why when it comes to Nazism and I'm Jewish and my family is Jewish, my husband is Jewish, and the Holocaust is very close to me, and I just cannot actually express how close it is to me. And when it comes to Nazism and whatever associated with that war and all this uh, atrocity which, uh, you know, uh, Germans uh, did it in my country, my mother-in-law basically was kept in a ghetto and she gave a birth to her daughter in a ghetto. It was in Western Ukraine. You know, it's just a miracle that she wasn't killed and she survived that. I mean, it was all in my, you know, on my mind. And I am very much follow the, in, uh, all these um, uh, events in Ukraine. And I am very much psychologically in support of what actually Russian Russian people are doing to trying to eliminate that crazy, crazy neo-Nazism, which is really a big problem in Ukraine. My husband was born in... Uh, uh, Arena, Arena, so do you have a question for Scott? Basically, uh, I, I just want to, uh, I really, uh, I, I love to listen to your uh, uh, podcast. However, when uh, you uh, change that tone, it's uh, kind of bothered me, really. I follow those events in uh, Ukraine very closely, and it doesn't seem that there is any kind of change of game 
is expected. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me like that. So that's what my question to you. Uh, I understand your standpoint that new, uh, there is a uh, soldiers being trained outside of Ukraine and all the stuff, but from all the news I get from a, different sources, it, it doesn't seem that it is actually the case. Okay, thanks, Rena. So let's give Scott a chance to respond. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for your uh, for your question. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder from next week's <laughs> uh, program, which is going to deal exactly with what you're talking about. Um, so what I what I'll say is this: um, in the same way that I, I reassessed um, the situation in Iraq, uh, I will explain next week why there was a reassessment of the ground reality uh, in Ukraine. Um, but I, I, I'll leave you with this. You know, when I say game changer, that doesn't mean that Russia's losing the game. It just means the game has changed. Um, you know, when 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 Russia started special military operation, uh, there was one reality. And uh, sometime in, in May, when the United States approved uh, a $40 billion military uh, aid package combined with $13 billion for a total of $53 billion, that's a new reality. And as an intelligence officer, it's my job to reevaluate the situation based upon this new reality. And um, that's why I called it a game changer, because the game has changed. There's $53 billion of reasons why the game has changed. It doesn't mean Russia's losing. It doesn't mean Russia's going to lose. It means, however, that Russia's job has become $53 billion more complicated than it was when they started. But like I said, we'll we'll go through that next week. All right. Okay. All thank, right. You. thank you. Thank you, Arena. Be well. All right. So that's about the end of our hour. I just wanted to say, uh, follow up what Scott mentioned earlier, that we are starting something called Scott Ritter Extra, and uh, there's going to be some special content that's available to members only. Uh, and if you go to USTourOfDuty.org, all the info is there. And uh, we're going to be thinking about this as kind of a think tank. Uh, and we want uh, the people who are members to work with us on an ongoing basis uh, and help us figure out some things to do. And what I mean by that is, is, is the, uh, the donations that are coming in for this are going to be split between Scott and U.S. Tour of Duty. And we are a nonprofit that has been providing service to, for services to veterans uh, since 2005. A lot of the stuff we do is arts-oriented, both for therapeutic purposes and also for career preparation. But, you know, our overriding mission is to not only help veterans, but to work with veterans uh, for the greater good. And so that's what I mean by we want to work with you and we want you to uh, participate and make your suggestions. And if you're going to be donating and signing up, then you have a right to have some say in what we do. So... Think about what you would like U.S. Tour of Duty to do. Think about guests that you want us to have with Scott. Uh, we're going to be doing interviews with uh, other people, have discussions with them. We're going to be doing events. Scott is speaking, by the way, June 4th uh, in Houston. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll get a lot more bookings just like the old days. So that's another thing. If you have any ideas on where we can do events, you can email us about that. Uh, any other thoughts that you have, Scott, on, on what this whole Scott Ritter extra thing can be about? Well, again, it can be about whatever um, we collaborate on, what you and I can come up with. And uh, I think uh, as important or more importantly, uh, what uh, what people want to hear. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't do us too good to, to, to speak to ourselves. Uh, it does better when we're addressing the uh, issues or problems that other people have identified. So uh, hopefully this will be a collaboration between us and uh, whatever audience we're able to attract. All right, so in the meanwhile, please go to USTourOfDuty.org to read the article Scott just wrote. Next Thursday, we'll publish part two of that. And, uh, or oh, hold on, are we gonna publish the article on Thursday or do the podcast on Thursday? I think Thursday? we're doing the podcast on Thursday and then we'll All publish right. the article prior to that. All right, so sometime between now and Thursday, we'll publish the article and then come back next Thursday to discuss it ustourofduty.org. Thank you all for tuning in. Sorry, it was a little rough with the phone calls and the video, but uh, like I said, it was the first time. So I think things will go smoother in the future. And thanks to you, Scott. Talk to you soon.